Section two of Knoll ABC by H. Beam Piper and John J. McGuire. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karina Schultz. Sitting down again at the breakfast table with her father, Claire levered another cigarette out of the ready lit and puffed at it with exaggeratedly bored slowness. She was still frightened. Ray shouldn't have done what he did, even if he had furnished a plausible explanation. The trouble with plausible explanations was having to make them. Sooner or later you made too many, and then you made one that wasn't so plausible. And then all the others were remembered, and they all looked phony. And why had the senator had to mention Ralph? Was he beginning to suspect the truth about that, too? I hope not, she thought desperately. If he ever found out about that, it'd kill him. Just kill him, period. Mrs. Harris must have turned off the video after they had gone up to the landing stage. To cover her nervousness, she reached up and snapped it on again. The screen lit, and from it a young man with dark eyes under bushy black brows was shouting angrily, "'Most obvious sort of conspiracy! If the Radical Socialist Party leaders or the Consolidated Illiterates Organization Political Action Committee need any further evidence of the character of their candidate and idolized leader Chester Pelton, the treatment given to Pelton's candidacy by literate first-class Elliot C. Mongery, this morning ought to be sufficient to remove the scales from the eyes of the blindest of them.' I won't state in so many words that Chester Pelton sold out the Radical Socialists and the Consolidated Illiterates Organization to the Associated Fraternities of Literates, because, since no witness to any actual transfer of money can be found, such a statement would be libelous, provided Pelton had nerve enough to sue me. Why, you dirty, misbegotten, illegitimate— Pelton was on his feet. His hand went to his hip and then, realizing that he was unarmed, and in any case confronted only by an electronic image, he sat down again. "'Pelton's been yapping for socialized literacy,' the man on the screen continued. "'I'm not going back to the old argument that any kind of socialization is only the thin edge of the wedge which will pry open the pit of horrors from which the world has climbed since the Fourth World War. If you don't realize that now, it's no use for me to repeat it again. But—' I will ask you, do you realize for a moment what a program of socialized literacy would mean, apart from the implications of any kind of socialization? It would mean that inside of five years the literates would control the whole government. They control the courts now. Only a literate can become a lawyer, and only a lawyer can become a judge. They control the armed forces. Only a literate can enter West Point or Fort McKenzie or Chapultepec or White Sands or Annapolis. And if Chester Pelton's socialization scheme goes into effect, there will be no branch of the government which will not be completely under the control of the associated fraternities of literates. The screen went suddenly dark. Her father turned to catch her with her hand still on the switch. Put it back on. I want to hear what that lying pimp of a Slade gardener is saying about me. Phooey! You'd have shot it out yourself if you'd had your gun on. I saw you reaching for it. Now be quiet and take it easy, she ordered. He reached toward the ready lit for a cigarette. Then his hand stopped. His face was contorted with pain. He gave a gasp of suffocation. Claire cried in dismay. You're not going to have another of those attacks. Where are the nitrocaine bulbs? don't have any here 
some at the office but i told you to get more she accused oh i don't need them really his voice was steadier now the spasm of pain had passed he filled his coffee cup and sipped from it turn on the video again claire i want to hear what that gardener's saying i will not don't you have people at party headquarters monitoring this stuff well then somebody'll prepare an answer if he needs answering i think he does a lot of these dumbbells will hear that and believe it i'll talk to frank he'll know what to do frank again she frowned look senator you think frank cardin's your friend but i don't trust him i never could she said i think he's utterly and entirely unscrupulous amoral i believe is the word like a savage or a pirate or one of the old-time nazis or communists oh claire her father protested frank's in a tough business you have no idea the lengths competition goes to in the beer business and he's been in politics and dealing with racketeers and labor unions all his life but he's a good sound illiterate family illiterate for four generations like ours and i'd trust him with anything you heard this fellow mongery <laughs> i always have to pause to keep from calling him mongrel saying that i deserve the credit for pulling the radicals out of the mud and getting the party back on the tracks well i couldn't have begun to do it without frank cardin frank cardin stood on the sidewalk looking approvingly into the window of o'reilly's tavern in which his display crew had already set up the spread for the current week on either side was a giant six-foot replica in black glass of the cardin bottle in the conventional shape accepted by an illiterate public as containing beer bearing the red cardin label with its pictured bottle in a central white disc because of the heroic size of the bottles the pictured bottle on the label bore a bottle bearing a label bearing a bottle bearing a bottle on a label he counted eight pictured bottles down to the tiniest dot of black there were four-foot bottles next to the six-foot bottles and three-foot bottles next to them and in the middle background a life-size tridimensional picture of an almost nude and incredibly pulchritudinous young lady smiling in invitation at the passing throng and extending a foaming bottle of cardons in her hand aside from the printed trademark registry statements on the labels there was not a printed word visible in the window he pushed through the swinging doors and looked down the long room with the chairs still roosting sleepily on the tables and made a quick count of the early drinkers two-thirds of them in white smocks and sam brown belts obviously from literates hall across the street late drinkers he corrected himself mentally they'd be the night shift having their drinks before going home good morning mr cardin the bartender greeted him still drinking your own hasn't poisoned me yet cardin told him or anybody else he folded a sea bill accordion-wise and set it on edge on the bar give everybody what they want drink up gentlemen and have one on mr cardin the bartender announced then lowered his voice o'reilly wants to see you about he gave a barely perceptible nod in the direction of the building across the street yes i want to see him too cardin poured from the bottle in front of him accepted the thanks of the house and when the bartender brought the fifteen dollars odd change from the dozen drinks he pushed it back he drank slowly looking around the room then set down his empty glass and went back 
passed two doors which bore pictured half-doors, revealing, respectively, masculine-trousered and feminine-stockinged ankles, and opened the unmarked office door beyond. The bartender, he knew, had pushed the signal button. The door was unlocked, and inside, O'Reilly, baptismal name Luigi O'Reilly, was waiting. "'Chief wants to see you right away,' the saloon-keeper said. The brewer nodded. "'All right. Keep me covered. Don't know how long I'll be.' He crossed the room and opened a corner cupboard, stepping inside. The corner cupboard, which was an elevator, took him to a tunnel below the street. Across the street he entered another elevator, set the indicator for the tenth floor, and ascended. As the car rose, he could feel the personality of Frank Cardin, illiterate brewer, drop from him as though he were an actor returning from the stage to his dressing-room. The room into which he emerged was almost that. There was a long table, at which two white-smocked literates drank coffee and went over some papers. A third literate sprawled in a deep chair, resting. At a small table, four men in black shirts and leather breeches and field boots played poker, while a fifth, who had just entered and had not yet removed his leather helmet and jacket or his weapons belt, stood watching them. Cardin went to a row of lockers along the wall, opened one, and took out a white smock, pulling it over his head and zipping it up to the throat. Then he buckled on a Sam Brown with its tablet holster and stylus gas projector. The literate sprawling in the chair opened one eye. "'Hi, Frank. Feels good to have them on again, doesn't it?' "'Yes. Clean,' Cardin replied. "'It'll be just for half an hour, but—' He passed through the door across from the elevator, went down a short hall, and spoke in greeting to the leather-jacketed stormtrooper on guard outside the door at the other end. "'Mr. Cardin,' the guard nodded, "'Mr. Lansdale's expecting you.' "'So I understand, Bert.' He opened the door and went through. William R. Lansdale rose from behind his desk and advanced to greet him with a quick handshake, guiding him to a chair beside the desk. As he did, he sniffed and raised an eyebrow. "'Beer this early, Frank?' he asked. "'Morning, noon, and night, Chief,' Cardin replied. "'When you said this job was going to be dangerous, I didn't know you meant that it would lead straight to an alcoholic's grave.' "'Let me get you a cup of coffee and a cigar, then.' The white-haired literate executive resumed his seat, passing a hand back and forth slowly across the face of the commo, the diamond on his finger twinkling, and gave brief instructions. And just relax for a minute. You have a tough job this time, Frank. They were both silent as a novice literate bustled in with coffee and individually sealed cigars. At least you're not one of these plain living and right-thinking fanatics like Wilton Joyner and Harvey Graves. Corden said, on top of everything else, that I could not take. Lansdale's thin face broke into a smile, little wrinkles putting his mouth in parentheses. Cardin sampled the coffee, and then used a sixteenth-century Italian stiletto from Lansdale's desk to perforate the end of his cigar. Much as I hate it, I'll have to get out of here as soon as I can, he said. I don't know how long O'Reilly can keep me covered down at the tavern. Lansdale nodded. "'Well, how are things going, then?' First of all, the brewery,' Cardin began. Lansdale consigned the brewery to perdition. "'That's just your cover. Any money it makes is purely irrelevant. How about the election?' "'Pelton's in,' Cardin said, "'as nearly in as any candidate ever was before the polls opened.' 
three months ago the independents were as solid as Gibraltar used to be. Today they look like Gibraltar after the H-bomb hit it. The only difference is they don't know what hit them yet. Hamilton's campaign manager does, Lansdale said. Did you hear his telecast this morning? Cardin shook his head. Lansdale handed over a little half-inch, thirty-minute record disc. All you need is the first three or four minutes, he said. The rest of it is repetition. Cardin put the disc in his pocket recorder and set it for playback, putting the plug in his ear. After a while, he shut it off and took out the earplug. That's bad. What are we going to do about it? Lansdale shrugged. What are you going to do? he countered. You're Pelton's campaign manager. Heaven pity him. Cardin thought for a moment. We'll play it for laughs, he decided. Some of our semantics experts could make the joke of the year out of it by the time the polls open tomorrow. The fraternities bribing their worst enemy to attack them so that he can ruin their business? Who's been listening to a tape of Alice in Wonderland at Independent Conservative Headquarters? That would work, Lansdale agreed, and we can count on our friends Joyner and Graves to give you every possible assistance with their customary bull-in-a-china-shop tactics. I suppose you've seen these posters they've been plastering around. If you can read this, Chester Pelton is your sworn enemy. A vote for Pelton is a vote for your own enslavement. <laughs> Naturally. And have you seen the telecast we've been using? A view of it, with a semantically correct spoken paraphrase? Lansdale nodded. And I've also noticed that those posters have been acquiring different obscene crayon drawings, too. That's just typical of the short-range Joyner Graves mentality. Why, they've made more votes for Pelton than he's made for himself. Is it any wonder we're convinced that people like that aren't to be trusted to formulate the future policy of the fraternities? Well, they've proved themselves wrong. I wonder, though, if we can prove ourselves right in the long run. There are times when this thing scares me, Chief. If anything went wrong, what, for instance? Somebody could get to Pelton. Cardin made a stabbing gesture with the stiletto, which he still held. Maybe you don't really know how hot this thing's gotten. What we had to cut out of Mongery's report this morning. Oh, I've been keeping in touch, Lansdale understated gently. Well, then, if anything happened to Pelton, there wouldn't be a literate left alive in this city twelve hours later. And I question whether or not Graves and Joyner know that. I think they do. If they don't, it's not because I've failed to point it out to them. Of course, there are the independent conservative grafters. A lot of them are beginning to hear jail doors opening for them, and they're scared. But I think routine bodyguarding ought to protect Pelton from them, or from any isolated fanatics. And there is also the matter of Pelton's daughter, and his son, Cardin said. We know, and Graves and Joyner know, and I assume that Slade Gardner knows, that they can both read and write as well as any literate in the fraternities. Suppose that got out between now and the election. And that could not only hurt Pelton, but it would expose the work we've been doing in the schools, Lansdale added. And even inside the fraternities, that would raise the devil. Joyner and Graves don't begin to realize how far we've gone with that. They could kick up a simply hideous row about it. And if Pelton found out that his kids are literates, whew, Corden grimaced, or what we've been doing to them, I hope I'm not around when that happens. I'm beginning to like the cantankerous old bugger. I was afraid of that, Lansdale said. Well, don't let it interfere with what you have to do. Remember, Frank, the plan has to come first, always. 
He walked with O'Reilly to the street door, talking about tomorrow's election. After shaking hands with the saloon-keeper, he crossed the sidewalk and stepped onto the beltway, moving across the strips until he came to the twenty-miles-per-hour strip. The tall office buildings of Upper Yonkers Borough marched away as he stood on the strip, appreciatively puffing at Lansdale's cigar. The character of the street changed, the buildings grew lower, and the quiet and fashionable ground-floor shops and cafes gave place to bargain stores their audio advertisers whooping urgently about improbable prices and offerings, and garish, noisy, crowded bars and cafeterias blaring recorded popular music. There was quite a bit of political advertising in evidence, huge pictures of the two major senatorial candidates. He estimated that Chester Pelton's bald head and bulldog features appeared twice for every one of Grant Hamilton's white locks, old-fashioned spectacles, and self-satisfied smirk. Then he came to the building on which he had parked his copter and left the beltway, entering and riding up to the landing stage on the helical escalator. There seemed to have been some trouble. About a dozen independent conservative stormtroopers in their white robes and hoods, with the fiery cross emblem on their breasts, were bunched together, most of them with their right hands inside their bosoms, while a similar group of radical conservative stormtroopers, with their black sombreros and little black masks, stood watching them and fingering the white-handled pistols they wore in pairs on their belts. Between the two groups were four city policemen, looking acutely unhappy. The group in the Lone Ranger uniforms, he saw, were standing in front of a huge tridimensional animated portrait of Chester Pelton. As he watched, the pictured candidate raised a clenched fist, and Pelton's recorded and amplified voice thundered, "'Put the literates in their place!' our servants, not our masters. He recognized the group leader of the radical socialists. The masks were too small to be more than token disguises, and beckoned to him, at the same time walking toward his copter. The man in black with the white-handled pistols followed him, spurs jingling. Hello, Mr. Cardin, he said, joining him. Nothing to it. We got a tip they were coming to sabotage Big Brother over there, take out our sound recording, and put in one of their own, like they did over in Queens last week. The town clowns got here in time to save everybody's face, so there wasn't any shooting. We're staying put till they go, though. Put the literates in their place. Our servants, not our masters. The huge tridianimate bellowed. Over in Queens, the independents had managed to get at a similar tridianimate, had taken out the record, and had put in one. I am a lying fraud. Vote for Grant Hamilton and liberty and sound judgment. Smart work, Goodkin, he approved. Don't let any of your boys start the gunplay. The city cops are beginning to get wise to who's going to win the election tomorrow, but don't antagonize them. If any of those Ku Kluxers tries to pull a gun, don't waste time trying to wing him. Just hold on to that fiery something or other on his chest and let him have it, and let the coroner worry about him. Yeah, with pleasure, Goodkin replied. You know, that nightshirt thing they wear is about the stupidest idea for a stormtroop uniform I ever saw natural target in a gunfight, and in a rough and tumble it gets them all tangled up. Ah, there go a couple of coppers to talk to them. That's what they've been waiting on. Now they can beat it without looking like they've been run out by our gang. Cardin nodded. Tell your boys to stay around for a while. They may expect you to leave right after they do, and then they'll try to slip back. You did a good job. Got here promptly. Be seeing you, Goodkin. He climbed into his own copter and started the motor. Put the literates in their place. 
the tridimensional colossus roared triumphantly after the retreating independence our servants not our masters at eight thousand he got the copter onto the lower manhattan beam and relaxed first of all he'd have to do something about answering slade gardner's telecast propaganda that stuff was dangerous the answer ought to go on the air by noon and should be stepped up through the afternoon first as a straight news story elliot mongery had fifteen minutes beginning at twelve fifteen no that wouldn't do mongery's sponsor for that time was adam flame heaters and adam flame was a subsidiary of canada northwest visionables and canada northwest was umbilicus deep in that kettle river lease graft that pelton had sworn to get investigated as soon as he took office professional ethics wouldn't allow mongery to say anything in pelton's behalf on adam flame's time well there was guthrie parham and he came on at twelve forty five and his sponsor was all right he'd call parham and tell him what he wanted done the buzzer warned him that he was approaching the lower manhattan beacon he shifted to manual control dropped down to the three thousand foot level and set his selector beam for the signal from pelton's purchaser's paradise down toward the tip of the island in the section that had been rebuilt after that stalin mark fifteen guided missile had gotten through the counter-rocket defenses in 1987, he could see the quadrant cross of his goal, with public landing stages on each of the four arms, and the higher central block with its landing stage for freight and store personnel. Above the four public stages, helicopters swarmed like mayflies, mayflies which had mutated and invented ritual or military drill or choreography, coming in four streams to the tip of the arms and rising vertically from the middle there was about ten times the normal amount of traffic for this early in the morning he wondered briefly then remembered and cursed that infernal sail grudgingly he respected russell latterman's smartness and in consequence the ability of wilton joyner and harvey graves in selecting a good agent to plant in pelton's store letterman gave a plausible impersonation of the illiterate businessman loyal prime minister of pelton's commercial empire generalissimo and the perpetual war against macy and gimbals from that viewpoint the sale was excellent business latterman had gotten the jump on all the other department stores for the winter fashions and fall sports trade he had also turned the store into a madhouse at the exact time when chester pelton needed to give all his attention to the election pressing the button that put on his private recognition signal he rose above the incoming customers and began to drop toward the private landing stage circling to get a view of the other four stages maybe the sale could be turned to some advantage at that a free souvenir with each purchase carrying a pelton for senator picture message he broke off peering down at the five hundred foot square landing stage above the central block then brought his copter swooping down rapidly the white-clad figures he had seen swarming up the helical escalator were not wearing the ku klux robes of the independent conservative stormtroops as he had first feared they were in literate smocks and among them were the black leather jackets and futuristic helmets of their guards they were led he saw by stephen s bain the store's chief literate with him were his assistant literate third class roger b feinberg and the novices carrying books and briefcases and cased typewriters and the guards and every literate employed in the store four or five men in ordinary vivid-colored business suits were obviously expostulating about something as he landed and threw back the transparent canopy he could hear a babble of voices above which feinberg was crying unfair 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 to organized literacy 
he jumped out and hurried over. "'But you simply can't!' a white-haired man in blue and orange business clothes was protesting. "'If you do, the associated fraternities will be liable for losses we incur. You know that!' Bain, his thin face livid with anger, and also, Cardin noticed, with what looked like a couple of fresh bruises, ignored him. Feinberg broke off his chant of unfair, unfair, long enough to answer. A literate first class has been brutally assaulted by the illiterate owner of this store. Literate service for this store is accordingly being discontinued, pending a decision by the Grand Council of the local fraternity. Cardin grabbed the blue and orange-clad man and dragged him to one side. What happened, Hutchnecker? he demanded. They're walking out on us, Hutchnecker told him, unnecessarily. The boss had a fight with Bain, knocked him down a couple of times. Bain tried to pull his tablet gun, and I grabbed it away from him, and somebody else grabbed Pelton before he could pull his, and a couple of store cops got all the other literates in the office covered. Then Bain put on the general address system and began calling out the literates. Yes, but why did Pelton beat Bain up? Bain made a pass at Miss Clare. I wasn't there when it happened. She came into the office. Cardin felt his face tighten to a frown of perplexity. That wasn't like literate first-class Stephen S. Bain. He made quite a hobby of pinching salesgirls behind the counter, which was one thing. The boss's daughter was quite another. "'Where's Ladderman?' he asked, looking around. "'Down in the office with the others, trying to help Mr. Pelton. He's had another of those heart attacks.' Cardin swore and ran for the descending escalator, running down the rotating spiral to the executive floor and jumping off into the gawking mob of illiterate clerks crowded in the open doors of Pelton's office. He hit and shoved and elbowed and cursed them out of the way and burst into the big room beyond, and then, for a moment, he was almost sorry he had come. Pelton was slumped in his big relaxer chair, his face pale and twisted in pain, his breath coming in feeble gasps. His daughter was beside him, her blonde head bent over him. Russell Latterman was standing to one side, watching intently. For an instant, Cardin was reminded of a tomcat watching a promising mousehole. "'Claire!' Cardin exploded. "'Give him a nitrocaine bulb. Why are you all just standing around?' Claire turned. "'There are none,' she said, looking at him with desperate eyes. "'The box is empty. He must have used them all.' He shot a quick glance at Ladderman, catching the sales manager before he could erase a look of triumph from his face. Things began to add up. Ladderman, of course, was the undercover man for Wilton Joyner and Harvey Graves and the rest of the conservative faction at Literates Hall, just as he himself was Lansdale's agent. Obsessed with immediate advantages and disadvantages, the Joyner-Graves faction wanted to secure the re-election of Grant Hamilton, and the way things had been going in the past two months— only Chester Pelton's death could accomplish that. Ladderman had probably thrown out Pelton's nitrocaine capsules and then put Bain up to insulting Pelton's daughter, knowing that a fit of rage would bring on another heart attack, which could be fatal without the medicine. We'll send for more. The prescription's in the safe, she said faintly. The office safe was locked, and only a literate could open it. The double combination was neatly stenciled on the door, the numbers spelled out as words and the letters spelled in phonetic equivalents. All three of them, himself, Claire, and Russell Ladderman, could read them. None of them dared admit it. Ladderman was fairly licking his chops in anticipation. If Cardin opened the safe, Pelton's campaign manager stood convicted as illiterate. 
If Claire opened it, the gaggle of illiterate clerks in the doorway would see and speedily spread the news that the daughter of the arch-foe of literacy was herself able to read. Maybe Latterman hadn't really intended his employer to die. Maybe this was the situation he had really intended to contrive. Chester Pelton couldn't be allowed to die. If Grant Hamilton were returned to the Senate, the long-range planning of William Lansdale would suffer a crushing setback, and the public reaction would be catastrophic. The plan comes first, Lansdale had told him. He made his decision, and then saw that he hadn't needed to make it. Claire had straightened, left her father, crossed quickly to the safe, and was kneeling in front of it, her back stiff with determination, her fingers busy at the dials, her eyes going from them to the printed combination and back again. She swung open the door, skimmed through the papers inside, unerringly selected the prescription, and rose. "'Here, Russ, go get it filled at once,' she ordered, "'and hurry!' "'Oh, no, you don't,' Cardin thought. "'One chance is enough for you, Russ.' He snatched the prescription from her and turned to Latterman. "'I'll get it,' he told the sales manager. "'You're needed for the sale. Stay on the job here.' "'But with the literates walked out, we can't—' Cardin blazed. "'Do I have to teach you your business? Have a sample of each item set aside at the counter and pile sales slips under it. And for unique items, just detach the tag and put it with the sales slip. Now get out of here and get cracking with it.' He picked up the pistol that had been taken from Pelton when he had tried to draw it on Bain, checking the chamber and setting the safety. "'Know how to use this?' he asked Claire. "'Then hang on to it and stay close to your father. This wasn't any accident. It was a deliberate attempt on his life. I'll have a couple of store cops sent in here. See that they stay with you.' He gave her no chance to argue. Pushing Latterman ahead of him, he drove through the mob of clerks outside the door. "'Course she can. Didn't you see her open the safe?' he heard. Nobody but illiterate. Then she's illiterate herself. A couple of centuries ago, they would have talked like that if it had been discovered that the girl were pregnant. A couple of centuries before that, they would have been equally horrified if she had been discovered to have been a Protestant, or a Catholic, or whatever the locally unpopular religion happened to be. By noon, this would be all over Penn, Jersey, York, coming on top of Slade Gardner's accusations. He ran up the spiral escalator, stumbling and regaining his footing as he left it. Bain and his striking literates were all gone. He saw a sergeant of Pelton's store police and went toward him, taking his spare identity badge from his pocket. Here, he said, handing it to the sergeant, get another officer and go down to Pelton's office. Show it to Miss Pelton and tell her I sent you. There's been an attempt on Chester Pelton's life. You're to stay with him. Use your own judgment, but don't let anybody, and that definitely includes Russell Latterman, get at him. If you see anything suspicious, shoot first and ask questions afterwards. What's your name, Sergeant? Coccozello, sir. Guido Coccozello. All right. There'll be a medic or a pharmacist. A literate, anyhow, with medicine for Mr. Pelton. He'll ask for you, by name, and mention me. And there'll be another literate, maybe. He'll know your name and use mine. Hurry now, sergeant. He jumped into his copter, pulled forward the plexiglass canopy, and took off vertically to ten thousand feet, then, orienting himself, swooped downward toward a landing stage on the other side of the East River, cutting across traffic levels with an utter contempt for regulations. The building on which he landed was one of the principal pharmacies. He spiraled down on the escalator to the main floor and went directly to the literate in charge, noticing that he wore on his Sam Brown 
not only the badges of retail merchandising, pharmacist, and graduate chemist, but also that of medic in training. Snatching a pad and pencil from a counter, he wrote hastily, Your private office at once, urgent and important. Looking at it, the literate nodded in recognition of Cardin's literacy. Over this way, sir, he said, guiding Cardin to a small cubicle office. Here, Cardin gave him the prescription. Nitrocaine bulbs. They're for Chester Pelton. He's had a serious heart attack. He needs these with all speed. I don't suppose I need to tell you how many kinds of hell will break loose if he dies now, and the fraternities are accused, as the illiterates' organization will be sure to, of having had him poisoned. Who are you? the literate asked, taking the prescription and glancing at it. That, he gestured toward Cardin's silver-laced black Mexican jacket, isn't exactly a white smock. Cardin had his pocket recorder in his hand. He held it out, pressing a concealed stud. The stylus and tablet insignia glowed redly on it for a moment, then vanished. The uniformed literate nodded. Fill this exactly. Better do it yourself to make sure, and take it over to Pelton's yourself. I see you have a medic trainee's badge. Ask for Sergeant Cocozello and tell him Frank Cardin sent you. The literate, who had not recognized him before, opened his eyes at the name and whistled softly. And fix up a sedative to keep him quiet for not less than four, nor more than six, hours. Let me use your visiphone for a while, if you please. The man in the literate smock nodded and hurried out. Cardin dialed William R. Lansdale's private number. When Lansdale's thin, intense face appeared on the screen, he reported swiftly. The way I estimate it, he finished, Latterman put Bain up to making a pass at the girl, after having thrown out Pelton's nitrocaine bulbs, probably told the silly jerk that Claire was pining away with secret passion for him or something. Maybe he wanted to kill Pelton. Maybe he just wanted this to happen. I assume there's no chance of stopping a leak? Cardin laughed with mirthless harshness. That, I take it, was rhetorical. Yes, of course. Lansdale's face assumed the blank expression that went with a pause for semantic reintegration. Can you cover yourself for about an hour? Certainly. Copter trouble. Visits to campaign headquarters. An appeal on Pelton's behalf for a new crew of literates for the store. Good enough. Come over. I think I can see a way to turn this to advantage. I'm going to call for an emergency session of the Grand Council this afternoon, and I want you sitting in on it. I want to talk to you about plans now. He considered for a moment. There's too much of a crowd at O'Reilly's now. Come the church way. Breaking the connection, Cardin dialed again. A girl's face, over a literate third-class smock, appeared in the screen. A lovely golden voice chimed at him. Mineola High School. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Frank Cardin here. Let me talk at once to your principal, literate first-class Prestonby. End of section 2